This is a question and answer session with Joel titled Experience and Knowledge, recorded July 9th, 2000 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. All right, so this morning, as I said, I don't have a prepared talk, so we can just have a nice discussion if we have good questions. This all depends on you. So does anybody have a question? Wesley. We talk about, and the mystics talk about, uh, the fact that we tend to live in a life, in a world of illusion, that the past, what we call the past, really doesn't exist, but we have these memories of it that we compose in our mind. So those are really, you know, made up. And then we have ideas about the future, and those are made up too, obviously. And then our picture of the present, um, you know, I have, a, I have an image of this equipment in the corner. Uh, but it's not the same image that anybody else in the room has of it. I've made it up in my own mind. It doesn't, doesn't correspond one-to-one -one with the reality of that stuff in the corner. Uh, I have a map of my relationships and of this room and so on. But it's not the same as the reality of the people in this room and so on. So I have this world of illusion. Then, on the other hand, the mystics tell us, don't believe what I say. Try this out in your own experience. You know, don't, you know, do, try this meditation, try this practice, take a look at your relationship, do this uh, inquiry, inquire into what happened, uh, reflect and so on, and, and find out in your own experience. So the question is, as a person who lives in this world of illusion, what is experience? So are you asking what do mystics mean when they say inquire into your own experience? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because how do I, how do I follow that well, instruction? Experience is uh, has several meanings actually, related meanings. What is your definition of experience. Let's begin with that. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll try to elucidate this, and it may not, uh, my meaning of experience may not be your meaning of experience. Um, well, I was really after what the <laughs> mystic's meaning of experience was. Um, Gosh, I guess I, I guess I usually think of it as being sort of after something happens, what do I think about? Mm. Yeah, which doesn't sound too good. <laughs> no, that's and that, but you see, this is very helpful that you mention that because I think uh, one way to clarify this is to say when mystics say, "Look into your own experience," you could always put the word "direct." In front of that. What is your direct experience of whatever is being investigated? So it's not what you think about what is going on, but what is your direct naked experience? This would include a direct naked experience of thought, but the idea is to get out from behind the filter of thought. Mm -hmm. So thought may or may not be going on in this. 
And indeed, you might go investigate thought itself, but you are not trying to figure out what is going on. You're simply trying to experience what is going on. Now, the reason mystics keep emphasizing this is because it is our own thought processes at the deepest level, not just our formal thought processes, but our thought processes in, in the sense that the way we distinguish various things in the world is what creates for us the world we live in. And that colors our direct experience. Now, that is fine in and of itself. That is what uh, the thinking mind is supposed to do. The problem is we mistake the thought for the reality. We do not recognize thought is just thought. So we hear, for instance, a bird. And it's actually very difficult to just have the direct experience of that sound without automatically identifying it as bird and have the mind in a very subliminal way create a whole little story about that sound. Where it came from, if you know anything about birds, what kind of bird it is, all that is usually part of our experience. And we don't understand the difference of what is added into this by the thinking mind and what is the pure, raw experience. So it's not that the mind should shut up and never make distinctions and never have ideas about the world, but we should always be aware this is just an idea about the world. Useful or not, or whatever, but it can never be any more than an idea about the world. It itself can never become any other kind of reality but an imaginary reality, an idea reality. You see what I'm talking about? So there's so much emphasis on mystical traditions about looking in your direct experience. What is actually going on? Because built into all this thinking that the thinking mind projects onto experience are a whole lot of assumptions that we get from our culture, that are built into our language, that we just take for granted. For instance, one of them about experience itself is that I am having an experience. <laughs> so a mystic would say, well, go look and see if you can find any eye there that is having this experience. You see what I'm talking about? So this isn't coming up with a psychological theory. This is about direct looking. What is going on here when I talk about experience? It sounds a lot like a meditation. Well, this is why uh, inquiry and meditation work hand in hand. And one of the reasons to develop a strong meditative practice is so you can do this kind of inquiry, this kind of analysis apart from creating theories. So in, a, in actually in a meditative state, which is simply an undistracted state, I don't mean any sort of high samadhi altered state of consciousness, but simply a state where the attention is not distracted by thought. 
which you cultivate through a meditation practice. Then you go, look, can you find any I here? And what do you find? Now you're using your mind in this kind of practice, but you're using it in an analytic way and you're using it to examine what is actually there rather than to create a new theory. So you might say things like, well, what is actually here in this experience now? Well, there's sights in this experience, there's sounds in this experience, you know, there are thoughts in this experience, but is there any I in this experience? There's sensations in this experience, but what is the referent to this word I when I say, oh, I, I'm having a wonderful experience. I went to the country fair yesterday, I had a wonderful experience. Who had that experience? So this is just an example of what mystics mean when they say, go look for yourself, go investigate for yourself. It's not just the teachings of the teacher that have to be investigated. It's your own most fundamental assumptions about what is going on that have to be investigated. Is that helpful at all? Mm -hmm. Very much. So can you ever know what's really going on? I mean, like, because you're always thinking it. Your mind is going to tell, say something unless it doesn't say anything. <laughs> what do you mean by knowledge? Again, this is very important. So what do you mean by know? Oh. Most people, when they say, I know something, are referring to a theory, a, some sort of intellectual knowledge. So this is confusing when we talk about mysticism because it goes along with adding uh, direct in front of experience. You can always add direct in front of knowing when mystics are talking about knowing. So we don't mean usually knowing in a mystical sense in the same way we mean it in an ordinary conventional sense. So... If you say, can you ever know what's going on? If you mean, can you ever have the true theory? Mm -hmm. The true idea about what is happening? No, you can't have that. Well, this is something you can investigate. <laughs> but a mystic will say, no. Because all intellectual knowledge is relative. All intellectual knowledge changes. Whatever you think today... Uh, may be useful to do something, but it is still just an idea about what is going on. So we could look at science. The history of science is a very good example, particularly for this culture, because most people in this culture look at science as giving us the truest kind of intellectual, theoretical knowledge. And yet the fundamentals in science keep changing. What was believe so certainly yesterday is in question today and overturned today. And this has become only apparent really in the 20th century, and now it's almost taken for granted. Scientists don't even talk about the truth anymore. They talk about uh, useful theories, theories that work, because the truth is so up in the air about the most fundamental things. I'm reading a book right now called The End of Time, written by a very respectable scientist, physicist. And he's 
puzzled over what time means in physics. And do you really need it? And what is time? And he spent 20 years puzzling about this. And he's decided there is no such thing as time. <laughs> he should have asked the mystic. I mean, we could have told him. <laughs> but not only that, but this, is, this isn't just a, a statement from some sort of you know, insight, a direct insight. What he means is you don't need even the idea of time to do physics. Now, you see how in the, in the last century, in the 19th century, the official view of time was Newton's view. Time was this fundamental feature of the cosmos that moved in this steady, stately fashion. It was part of the framework in which everything happened, space and time. It was almost impossible to think about the world without space and time. Everybody took absolutely for granted there's such a thing as space and time. Now it's a big question whether there's such a thing as time. So these are examples of intellectual knowledge and very rigorous intellectual knowledge when we look at science. And even those are relative. Here today, gone tomorrow. And one of our major forms of suffering is we're always trying to figure out the truth about what is going on. We have this idea, if I really knew the truth, if I knew the truth about uh, people that I'm in relationship with, if I knew the truth about my past, if I knew the truth about what the government's doing, as though there is some objective truth out there that you could finally know, then everything would be, if not hunky-dory, <laughs> uh, at least it would empower you. You would feel better. You would feel less confused, less insecure, all those things. And what mystics are saying is you're barking up the wrong tree. It's never going to happen. You are never going to arrive at that kind of intellectual certainty, that kind of knowledge. But there is another kind of knowledge that comes with absolute certainty that you can discover. And that's why, for instance, I like to use the word gnosis rather than knowing or knowledge to make that distinction. We're not talking about intellectual knowledge. That's why mystics less formally will talk about things like having a direct non-conceptual insight into something. Now, what could that sort of knowing be that would be absolute certain? And in fact, I can give you all, right now, an example in your own experience. You all are absolutely certain that phenomena is appearing in consciousness. You don't know necessarily what the status of that phenomena is. You don't know whether you're dreaming or whether you're awake or whether this is some sort of illusion that our magician friend here, Todd, cooked up or whether you flipped out in a movie and this is all a movie. I mean, those things we could talk about and debate and see how we could figure out which is the case and all that. But I cannot convince you and no one can convince you that something, a somewhat, isn't appearing. If I say, Clavon, there's nothing appearing to you. Liar, liar, pants. 
fire. That's right. You know with absolute certainty, don't you? In that, that kind of knowing. But why? Because it's a direct, exp- directly, immediately. You don't have to think about it. You see what I mean? You don't have to wonder if anything is appearing here. But in the moment, like when things are appearing, I mean, it's like right action. It's, it's like um, since traditionally in our society, I mean, some people are taught morality, but I wasn't one of those. So, you know, you have to like, after you come to a certain point in your life and you've like screwed up a whole lot, you are you think you have because you didn't you acted what you you know like in a greedy way without consideration for you know the best of mankind and finally you kind of grow up and you want to like do the right thing in the moment and and that would be like each moment you know <laughs> as it progresses so you start learning and yet when these moments arrive you still seem sometimes i'm filtered by these emotions that keep me from acting directly, I just want to say things to people like, that's screwed up, just be quiet, do something else, that's not good, or tell me, just tell me what you want in this moment so that I can help you. You know, I want to, it, I have this desire, I guess desire, yeah, I could work with that, to communicate in a way that makes things happen so that people don't suffer so much, you know, it's like, it just seems like a lot of unnecessary physical, mental suffering that we can ease as humans if we knew how to act and how first of all let me say it's not necessarily wrong to say somebody don't say that you should shut up in a certain circumstance that could be skillful means so don't discount anything uh again just taken out of context that's what what uh everything being relative means it's either skillful or not relative to the context so this is a good example of why we can't know for certain in that sort of objective sense what is the right thing or the wrong thing to do in any particular situation that's why we can have guide books but not rule books i'm making a subtle distinction here but uh you know the ten commandments our ten precepts or whatever kinds of precepts are in any tradition are guidelines they are not hard and fast rules because you will run into situations where a precept, which most of the time is a good precept to follow, will suddenly not be skillful. So, again, we want to know what is the right thing to do. You know what? We can have ideas about it, and they can be very helpful. We can have guidelines about it, and they can be very helpful. But we don't know until the actual moment. And how we know is by knowing ourselves. And what makes it the right action is our intention and the purity of our intention. Love and compassion. And that is something that is is not always easy even to know directly because of our conditioning and, and so forth. And sometimes our motives are very mixed and whatnot. But a major part of the spiritual path is, again, about turning you back to examine how you really feel. Not only what you think about things, but how do you feel about things? Do you see what I mean? And it's essential to begin that kind of inquiry, to be honest. And a lot of people begin by trying to 
have good intentions and denying that they have little greedy, you know, corners and, and desires and whatnot. And that is a, a dreadful mistake because then you will never know. You're just fooling yourself. So you know through being honest. And again, it's the same principle, though. You open now your heart and you look directly what is in there without judgment. Without the mind sitting over there telling, oh, you shouldn't feel that. That's bad. Or you should feel more love. Why don't you work up some more love? (laughs) So they go hand in hand, these two sorts of inquiries. They seem to be sort of different. One seems to be a, a... a mental inquiry, and one is really an inquiry into the heart, but we have to get some detachment from that idea that things are absolutely right or wrong in order to be willing and able to honestly look and see what is actually going on in our hearts. What do we really want? What is our real intention? And then we can begin to examine that in terms of, is it bringing us happiness or suffering? So I may want this person to shut up because they're making me unhappy. And then I can, I can really investigate now. I can see whether if everybody who made me unhappy shut up in the world, would I be happy? And then it's through that kind of experience that we learn. This doesn't work. I mean, a more obvious one is something like money. You know, most people in our culture, and I think this is probably pretty uh, universal, think they will be happy when, when they get rich. Rich is always left sliding, you know, because rich is like a receding horizon. You know, as you get there, you suddenly aren't rich anymore, you know. You think if I had $100,000, I'd be rich. And as you get to $100,000, you see, gee, this is hardly enough to, to pay the rent here in Beverly Hills, you know, <laughs> let alone put food on the table. That 500000 is rich. But when you identify what it is you want and are sure it will make you happy, then you watch your experience and see if it does make you happy. What happens if you don't get it? You suffer. What happens if you do get it? How long does the happiness last? How long does it take for the thrill to wear off? How permanent will that be, even if you get it? So these are all, again, questions you ask about your own experience. And the knowing that comes out of it is direct. It's not a a theory about what's going to happen. It's you've been there. You've done that. You see what I mean? Yeah, done there, been there. (laughs) Yes, that too. (laughs) Thank you. Good question. I think one of the, um, part of the, what I call fun craziness, I know in my life, is that, like you talked about hearing the I'm sorry, room, what craziness? What I'm going to call fun <clears throat> slash craziness uh-huh. is that I realize a lot of what I do when I hear the bird, and I say, like you said, immediately kicks in. It's a perceptual experience. Immediately kicks in a whole thought cluster. And part of that is a biological genetic thing, which probably allows me to exist today or drive around in an automobile and not have to rub sticks together anymore. And it's part of the whole mechanism, the process of who I am, and to a certain extent is very helpful 
sort of utilitarian, etc. But and, and some of that's good and it kicks in. But then I hear the bird. Oh, it's a blue jay. Uh, really nice. Uh, remember they uh, sing in the morning. Oh, gee, it's ten o'clock. I was going to do something. Sorry, 10 o'clock here. I am stupid me listening to these damn birds, and I never do anything with my life. You see where I've already gone. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's marvelous that you can see it. Most people can't. And this comes from training yourself to be attentive to what's actually going on. But continue. No, I just, I mean, well, I, the question, I guess, is a little bit really to ask you to comment on that, because I realize that I feel these chains which, which move at the speed of whatever. Uh, and some of them are kind of cool. I mean, sometimes I say, yeah, birds, you know, God, it's so neat. They're out there and they're just this neat animal and they don't bother anybody too much and they fly and, God, that's nice, you know. And it's amazing. I've just sat in this chair. I haven't done anything but kick this thought thing in and I can go from hell to <laughs> wonderful things and I haven't moved a twit, you know. I just sit out here. So I guess part of it is that you always wonder, gee, if there's somebody who's enlightened, whatever that means, okay, we'll do a little quote thing with our fingers, <laughs> who's sort of enlightened or whatever else, what would they do if they were here right with me with my past or my remembrance or my whatever you want to call that memory capability of, and this bird sounds, and they're in my scenario, how would they do it different? And I think you sit there and you... Wonder about that. Uh, you don't do it different, actually. The, the exact same thing goes on, except with this difference. The chain of thought that gets going, if you watch it, you know, is a story. And at the center of the story is I. And then the story starts to be uh, take shape around what is good for this I or what's going to harm this I. Or what this I did in the past that was good, it can pat itself on the back about. Or what this I did that it's ashamed about. Or what it's going to do in the future. All those things. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Now, this is exactly what I was talking about before. The, the only difference is that someone who's deluded takes all that to be real. <clears throat> takes it to be true in a, in a kind of absolute sense. And most importantly, and at the deepest level, takes this I, that is the uh, grammatical center of this story, to be a, a real entity, a true entity. And this is what causes suffering. It's that, it boils down to something that simple. Now, the difference is, supposing, and I have to speak now, so I have to use words, well, let me try to uh, alter the grammar here a little bit. Supposing the experience is of watching a movie <coughs> unfold in consciousness, a movie made out of thoughts and uh, memories and all that, and first of all, recognizing that it's a movie and enjoying the movie regardless of what's happening to the main character in the movie. <laughs> now notice, there was no mention of an eye watching the movie. Just the movie. And recognition. 
but no eye recognizing this is a movie. You see what I'm talking about? So, you know, this is a crude analogy. But the difference isn't that mystics attain anything in enlightenment. On a spiritual path, you may attain uh, meditative skills. You may be able to do things a normal person can't do just because you've developed as part of your spiritual path, a form of concentration. You may be able to go into altered states and all sorts of things. But the essence of it is simply a recognition. It does not require one minute of any kind of practice to, to recognize this ultimately. All those things are helpful. It's the truth of what is going on in your, or I shouldn't say in your experience, is the truth of experience right this moment. It is the simple, obvious, plain, completely certain truth. There's no recognition of it, and that's what causes the suffering. And that's why recognition realization, insight, those sorts of words are synonyms for enlightenment. Waking up. Waking up in a dream is a, is a, is a more accurate way to uh, describe it. Because it's not after the fact. When we wake up after the fact and we look back and we say, oh, that was just a dream, then we recognize uh, after the fact, what was really going on. But imagine waking up in a dream, becoming lucid in a dream. The dream does not have to change at all. What's changed is a recognition. This is not real. This is a dream. Then if the dream in that moment happens to be a nightmare, what a relief. In fact, the nightmare could go on. You know, if you're have a propensity for, like, for scary movies, like I, you know, I say. I mean, people, a lot of people like to experience fear. That's why they go pay their money at the box office to, you know, to experience Jurassic Park or Alien and Son of Alien and Daughter of Alien. And all that. <laughs> that experience itself is not suffering. Even that experience of terror and fear and monsters, it's not the experience that is suffering. It is the illusion that we take to be real that there's somebody going to be eaten by these dinosaurs. Oh, now the fear, if you like, uh, coagulates around a, a center, a character, and that causes the suffering. I don't know if that's helpful at all. But. No, it is. And the, I think the joke is that you will say something like this. And I said, oh, yeah, I feel like the village idiot. Oh, we really got it. <laughs> and I do kind of have it just for a little, and then I go off again. And it's so simple. I mean, even Gandhiji talks about that's the craziness of all it. It's just, it's beyond being simple. <laughs> that's right. That is your... And then I completely wander off and goof up again. And I go, oh, yeah, okay. And I keep coming back. And that's, you know, the years click by. And that's what happens. <laughs> Well, this is why there are practices, yeah. there is a path, you know, uh, for most people it requires developing a kind of attentiveness so that you can just see what is going on. And for most people you, you see, you know, little bits and pieces here and a flash there and 
and you begin to see more and more, and you know, uh, big hunks of delusion and stuff fall away. And it's very important, the other side of this, to go back to what Clavine was saying, it's also very important to not just look at your experience and what we in this culture call our thoughts, but it's very important to look at our feelings, our emotions, our motivations, our intentions, our desires, because they are the energy that propels those long stories that run off. So this is why half the path is uh, working on our perception and how our thought colors our perception, but the other half is looking at our emotions and our feelings and our intentions and our desires and what is really going on here. That's the part that really takes the courage. Yes? So is it possible to have the direct knowing without being enlightened? I gave you an example. You directly know that something's arising in consciousness. You, you're absolutely certain about that, aren't you? Well, I don't think I've had very many times in my life where I have a direct knowing where my mind isn't bringing in, at least, you know, in a split second later, the explanations about it. But I did have an experience in Egypt that I wonder if you would describe as a direct knowing. And that was going into this chamber. I had an expectation going in because I was told that this goddess could take one to the next level. So I had an expectation, oh, you know, this is what I'm going to ask for. I'd like to go to the next level of my spiritual experience and whatever. But when I got in and was in the midst of all the energy that was happening, all of that was gone, and what I felt like I knew was that this was love and compassion. And it, it seemed to me that that was a direct knowing. I don't know how I knew that. I wasn't uh, really looking for explanations, but I was experiencing this. But I labeled it. I mean, I, at some point, I labeled it. This is love and compassion. So do you see what I'm saying? Yes. I'm trying to understand. Only you can answer the question. I can't answer the question, was this direct knowing? Because the whole uh, essence of direct knowing is you know. You don't have to ask anybody. That is direct knowing. Uh, direct knowing is on a scale up until uh, enlightenment. Because... On a spiritual path, you know, the rigidity of how we have viewed the world starts to break down. And it exposes us to all sorts of different ways of, it, of experiencing the world. Because the truth of it is, there's no one way to experience the world, you know. And then through that, we also have uh, varying degrees of direct experience. So it's not a, a black and white thing here. But in the in every moment of experience, there's this uh, a component of direct knowing. And we overlook it. Do you see what I mean? We overlook it. Direct knowing, in a funny way, is more akin to what we think of as ignorance. And sometimes I say, my secret is, I'm totally ignorant. I am totally ignorant of 
the things that most people think they know. It's that ignorance that is the space that allows experiences as you experience. Do you see what I mean? You said you went in with certain expectations and then they were just wiped out by this experience. One of our limitations in delusion is that we're constantly going to experience with expectations and they distract us. So it's not that expectations don't ever form or arise, certainly they do, but if you recognize this is just an expectation, just a thought, just an, uh, some little fantasy about the future based on things that have happened in the past, but there's no clinging to that expectation. There's no having it in your mind that this is any kind of real knowing. There is that fundamental open ground of ignorance. Then what appears to us has infinite possibilities rather than being limited by expectation. And then being stuck in this duality. I expected this and this didn't appear. And then we're caught in this, oh, you know, frustration or whatever. But when there's ignorance about what's going to happen, then whatever happens is just the manifestation of that. So expectation is part of this delusion. And it's part of this taking the products of the imagination, the thinking mind to be real, to have some sort of solidity, something we could actually know in any sort of certain way. And when things don't work out the way we expected, we're so unhappy because reality isn't what we wanted it to be. <laughs> Instead of seeing that reality is always beautiful, it's always divine. <laughs> any other... Uh, Follow up? Yes. I, I, when I was just uh, recently, I became aware of different things that my mind does that, so, that seem to be practiced, like um, an experience, like uh, say watching the breath. It's like a it's like a balance, be like me and the breath, you know, this kind of field. Um, it's not too bad. Sometimes I like, I like to go into spacious. Where yeah, I'm all space, and then things happen. That's very nice. Except then, when I get sucked into a thought, it's it's a real dramatic decline, you know, crash and burn. Um, and I, and, but then I was also trying to do. Uh, sometimes I try to do thing where I'm, I'm just focusing on I, like so who am I? And then uh, and that's very interesting. There's all, all, the whole world's in, kind of shaking me, but. But, well, I mean, it, so there's like a positive aspect, which is, I can really see the, the ch jumpiness of the world, but then I feel sort of small and limited, you know, so then I'm dissatisfied with that. But when I'm in the spacious one, I like that, but then when I um, I get sucked into thought, then I, f I feel this, like, loss, you know, big loss. Uh, and then I think some other, then another practice is, like, uh, maybe chanting, I've, I've tried that, you know, like, the, that stuff, but then I start feeling like I'm on a chain gang. And now it's interesting to see these different effects, but I'm wondering if it's like, so I'm, I'm trying to look in a certain dissatisfaction each of them, but yeah, I'm wondering if like this is a meta medita meditation or I'm seeing all these things, or am I just like, um, uh, or 
am I just being a dilettante? And, um, did I ask the question? <laughs> I think so. I think dilettante is uh, not a helpful label, but what you perhaps aren't seeing is that you're approaching meditation practice with some expectation of what you are going to get out of it. And then that is setting up a judgment about what's positive and what's negative about the various practices. And in that, I think you're missing the point of the practices. So if you think you know what the practices are supposed to do, then none of the practices is going to work for you. Because what the point of the practice is to show you something you don't know. So you have to surrender to the practice. And if you prematurely are saying, oh, this practice isn't giving me what I want, and you drop it, and then you go on to another one, and it's got some nice points, but it's not really giving me what I want, and you drop that and so forth. You are trying to make the practices yours. You're trying to own the practices rather than surrender yourself to the practices. And this is where faith comes in. With a faith and a trust, not an ultimate faith and trust because it was written someplace in a holy book that this is what you should do, but with a faith and a trust in your teachers, in the whole lineage of teaching, you know what I mean? And in a great, huge experience of humanity. And then... You go through the practice, and then you discover what the practice has to show you. The practice becomes your teacher, but you have to submit to the practice. Now, each practice, like I assume you're talking about like a concentration practice where you say you get very focused, but then you feel limited, and then the spacious practice, that sounds more like a Vipassana or choiceless awareness, and then the chanting practice, that's another kind of practice, you know. None of those practices produce enlightenment, but those practices reveal veils to enlightenment, or they sharpen our native equipment, our attention or whatever, so that then we can use that to go look and see without distraction what is truly going on in our direct experience. But if I, um, for instance, want to be a musician, and then I went to one teacher and he said, well, you want to play the piano? I say, yes. He says, well, the way you do that is you play uh, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do on the scale. See, and you do that three hours a day. And I did this for a week or so. I said, you know, it was fun for a while, but this is kind of pretty boring. This isn't playing music. I don't want to do that, right? And you went on to another teacher. Maybe they've got a, a different uh, discipline. You try their discipline for a while. And then, you, you know, well, you're never going to become a musician that way. So you have to decide what teacher, what practice. Do you know what I mean? But once you've made that connection, then my suggestion to you is just surrender to that practice, at least for a good long while. It is true, sometimes people get stuck in a practice for years and, it, you know, they reach a dead end and uh, they're not going anywhere and they meet another teacher and they get another practice and it can help. But you really have to explore the practice to know that. And most practices work for most people, at least to some degree. So if you really want to find out what the practice has to show you, you stop judging the practice. 
Stop judging whether it's good or bad, whether it's producing good experiences or bad experiences, or whether you feel limited or expanded. You think this is what the practice is supposed to do. None of that's what the practice is supposed to do. Not, not, yeah, not entirely. I mean, I'm, I'm actually noticing the, just the differences, you know, and, and taking it as a teaching. The chanting, maybe. I, I didn't like because that was, I, I, that was distasteful. But, you know, I, I'm just... Um, <laughs> How about, how about, uh, how many mantras did you do? Oh, well, the first practice I did was 13 million. 13 million mantras. Yeah. How many, how many, uh, chantings have you, do you think you would have done? Oh, well, I've done a few, you know, a hundred thousand. And you went all, you did, you got up to a hundred thousand? Yeah, something. So you did a couple of those, 200, 300,000? Yeah. Okay. Let me just ask Ani something here. Uh, did, did the practice change after the first couple hundred thousand? Or? Yes. Yes. So yes. you because just... There's a point at which, first of all, you say mantra so softly that it's heard only by your color. And after a while, it just kind of takes over and you're riding on the crest of, of this sound. It, it, it was a totally unexpected. It was amazing. And then if I stopped to think about what I was doing, it was like being on ro roller skates and hitting a rock. <laughs> and that's a teaching right there. Right. It makes very clear what stopping to think about what you're doing does. Mm -hmm. So you, you actually can't lose in a situation like that. When you're so into a practice, what is called screwing up is part of the teaching of the practice. Mm -hmm. But you see, this is the whole point. You really have to give up your, your ideas, your judgments about what this is supposed to be. And you really have to surrender into the practice. Then if you do that for a few years and you're not seeing anything or whatever, then you want to go talk to your teacher and say, well, maybe this isn't the best practice for me or whatever. But you have to let the practice do you. Uh, what's his name? Uh, it's the founder of the Soto Zen School. Dogen. Dogen, thank you. Dogen has a wonderful uh, saying about this. He says, you turn Dharma, then Dharma turns you. You take up the practice, but you've got to allow Dharma to turn you. If you just turn Dharma, you know, and then walk away, you're never letting Dharma turn you. And you've got to have the discipline, the space, the time to do that. And some people be very different. Some people start a practice right away, they turn Dharma a little bit, boom, it spins them around like that. Some people have to turn a long time before they even get a little turn. And don't compare yourself to anybody else. It's, 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 that's not useful. Joe, yes. when I went on, on three-year retreat, my teacher said that um, there's some people that go on three-year retreat, they do all of the practices, they do everything and nothing. And it's just that, that they haven't oh, wow, surrendered yet. Right. Well, th that, that could have two meanings. I mean, in my case, I, I, the intuition is that, uh, well, the intuition is that I have to follow my intuition. And, um, for example, I may do something that, I may do something for a long time. You know, maybe it's always half-assed, I don't know. But, but then I'll do something else and I'll get a very strong result. Uh, very quickly, so it makes me think that, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's precisely that 
But you are looking, you are judging the result and you're looking at it still from the point of view of what the ego wants and likes. And that may not be the result that the practice is supposed to produce. This is why it's very, very good idea, and in most cases, almost essential to have a teacher. Because, for instance, just a common thing, I don't know if this is true of you, but many people, when they start a concentration practice, they start seeing colors or hearing sounds. Or, I mean, all sorts of phenomena start manifesting. That gets them very interested and excited. And they think, oh, something wonderful is going on. And then the teacher comes along and says, forget all that. Just watch the breath. And they have a wonderful uh, analogy for this in the Tibetan tradition. It's like a kettle that you put uh, on a fire to boil. And apparently in these big Tibetan kettles, when the water's been on the fire for a little while, you start hearing all this... And they call that the false boil. And if you take it off then and start trying to pour it, it's not really hot. But if you leave it on, all that dies down, and then you hear a deep boil coming from underneath. <laughs> See? So there are lots of things that manifest in a practice that somebody who doesn't have a teacher to guide them or whatever, that they take as being highly significant that is not significant. And then other very subtle things happen in a practice that are very significant that you tend to overlook. I had a Tibetan meditation teacher, and I was doing a concentration practice, and I was really trying to now do this practice because I never was really a good meditator on my path. And uh, I got to the point where, like, the whole world would just disappear. I mean, uh, it was like the iris of a camera lens closing off. And it was very spectacular. I mean, it was dramatic. I mean, we're sitting there, and just everything, like, disappears. And so I... I asked my meditation teacher about that. I described it all. You know, he listened. He says, oh. He said, well, if you notice that and go back to your breath. He wasn't impressed at all. <laughs> and then later something else happened, and he was gave, uh, adjusted my whole meditation practice. And it was almost something insignificant. I mean, uh, you know, most people might not even thought to mention to their teacher. So, again, this is a question of surrendering to the practice not trying to add the practice into your little repertoire of tricks of how to deal with the world. Is that helpful? Ask, go on if you want. Yes, Yasha. Oh, just the point of, about the, the music. You're saying someone goes to a music teacher, they don't like what they're given, the scales and all that, and they go to the next one. You just have to beg to differ with that, just in my own experience. I did that, went to teachers, couldn't learn to the teachers, and when I stopped doing that, I just taught myself and was satisfied immediately, you know, with instant gratification, which, of course, I wanted. And the, first of all, there are always exception to rules. Yeah. In the spiritual traditions, you find people who've spent, you know, 30 years on a path. And then there's people like Wei Ning who heard the Diamond Sutra, one verse of the Diamond Sutra read and woke up. But the, uh, as far as we can tell, I mean, statistically, most people uh, do need practice. And most people do walk a path. And most people, if they sit around waiting for this serendipitous moment, 
It's not going to happen. They're kidding themselves. But they've also walked the path in a previous life. I mean, there had to be a point at which they reached that that one word or one verse. Well, that's a particular cosmological explanation of it, which may or may not be useful. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's a very good one. I mean, no, no, it's no, a very, no. it's a you know traditional, no. uh, both in Hinduism and Buddhism. This is, but then that gets into karma and all that so forth, which again is a framework in which these teachings are taught. Just like a, a Sufi framework is Islam, and uh, you know, a Kabbalist framework is Judaism, and all that. And in fact, all teachings, including my own, have a framework. My framework is. 20th century or 21st century now, uh, America and my upbringing, and I try to make it more generic. I try to speak the, the language today that we just sort of take for granted. There are all sorts of assumptions and things I say that come from this framework. Nobody yeah. escapes the framework in their teaching. So there may be an explanation for that, but the, what we're interested in here is immediately not so much why that happened, but it is true that in, mm-hmm. when we look at one lifetime and compare it to another, some people wake up like that. Some people take a lot of practice. I always think of the Buddha, and the story of the Buddha is that, you know, he was a young prince, completely coddled in this life of luxury. He went out, he saw a sick person, an old person, a dead person. That woke him up to the realities of the world, the relative realities, but, you know, and that's what sent him off on a spiritual path. And then he spent six years or was it six years or something? And he was studying with these great Hindu teachers, meditation teachers. And he did all these practices and it took on a lot of ascetic practices. And he got so skinny that, as they say, you could see his backbone through his stomach. And he got to the point where he exhausted these practices. He attained all the states that you were supposed to attain and all that. But he still was not enlightened. He was still not satisfied. This comes down to you being your own authority. So he gave them all up. And he just went out and he sat under a tree and he said, well, that's it. I'm just going to sit here and I'm not going to move until I get enlightened. So in one sense, you could look at it that his, his, the time he spent with these teachers was all, all failed. These were all practices that failed. They didn't work. But the way I look at it is I doubt that that young prince, the day he left the palace, could have gone and sat under the Bodhi tree for three days and gotten enlightened. I think part of his path was going through all this, having it all exhausted, getting to this point where he was ripe. And part of that was, in a funny way, doing practices that didn't work. And I'm going to tell you a little secret because I know you'll forget it. You won't believe it. And that is no practice works. They all are designed to fail. Every single one. Big difference between a spiritual path and any other undertaking that you uh, do in life, or I should say a mystical path, is that the other undertakings, the teachers or the tradition or whatever, promises you success. You come study with me and I'm going to teach you how to sell real estate. You come study with me and I'm going to teach you how to win friends and influence people. It's all success, success, success preferably in 10 days, and it only cost you five grand. But nevertheless, <laughs> success. But everything I teach you is going to fail. 
until you get to the point where it's just all failed, you're totally exhausted, and then whether you want to surrender or not, you've got no choice. Surrender happens. So, uh, you know, mystics don't usually advertise this. You can't pick up what is enlightenment, say failure guaranteed here, because people won't, you know, they won't be interested. It's a good thing you don't charge. <laughs> well, I charge, I charge everything. Oh, that's you, right. Yes, you, you think you're, you're getting way cheaper just because I don't take your money. Well, I'm after your soul, your body, your mind, your heart, everything. Well, it's maybe a slightly different angle. Maybe usually where I get stuck, I think, and I'm hearing it here too, I bring up about Dr. Wolf, and he said, you know, he would, he said every practice that uh, he tried, he found that he had to add a creative twist to it. He had to make it his own. He had to do something different with it. Um, and there... It's like he's interacting. I hear an intu intuitive thing going on. So he had, he was very disciplined. He had contact with teachers, but he had someone he, he kind of resolved to make his own practice, probably out of you know it, it had a parallel obviously with these other ones. But he kind of created his own. But there there was that kind of integrity of the individual path, uh, and I think it can be very. That's what happens to me. Also. It, it, you know the should or the that that gets so loud that um, it uh, kind of seems to wreck my in, in intuitive movement or something. Well, I think that it goes with the discipline. You take on the discipline. You don't know what you're doing. You take it on, and as you get familiar with it, yes, then uh, curiosity awakens in this practice, and a kind of intuition can guide you, and it does become your own. But that's quite a bit different than jumping from one practice to another and trying it for a little while and saying, oh, this doesn't work and going to something else. Do you see what I mean? This is the art part of the spiritual path. There is the science part, but there's also the art part. And that has to do with just these things. But again, you know, we're talking within the parameters of a discipline, a seriousness, a commitment. That's what allows this to happen. So the more you get into a practice, the more you, first of all, the more you know the practice, the more the practice reveals to you, then you start making your moment to moment and intuitive adjustments. Maybe the practice ends up looking quite different than it was given to you. But that's an unfolding process and it doesn't come from my deciding, I don't like the way this practice is going, I think I'll do that. With some expectation of a certain result, particularly states like an expanded state or contracted state or a blissful state or you know what I mean? That becomes very dangerous in a practice when we start practicing in order to attain certain pleasant states and get attached to that and do the practice for that. That's, that is called uh, spiritual hedonism. And it's always warned against because you don't get enlightened by getting to some state and staying there, no matter how pleasant. Enlightenment is not a state beyond states. It's abiding and non-abiding, as the Buddhists talk about it. Nowhere to abide. Ibn Arabi, the great Sufi sheikh, says it's the station of no station. No station. Nowhere to be. Nowhere to settle. Nowhere to rest. No final arrival. 
there is a, a final thing where you sort of jump off the cliff, and then you're in free fall for the rest of eternity, but you never arrive. There's nothing to hang on to. Anytime there's any little bit of hang on to anything in a practice, again, this is where a teacher is very helpful. They point that out and say, okay, you know. And sometimes you practice to attain certain state because in that state it's um, easier to have a direct insight or a direct experience to see something. But the state itself is never it. And once you've gotten what you can get out of that state, <laughs> For those of you who don't know, I picked this up from the Tibetans. It's a little way of interrupting states. <laughs> Just when you think you've settled into a nice, lovely state. <laughs> they have a wonderful saying that falling water is always fresher than still water. And that applies to meditation, and they mean it specifically. We get into this. Uh, state of the mind is just like the still water of a pond and it reflects everything just as it is and it's perfect. And then people meditating to have this state. And then some, you know, crazy wisdom Dzogchen master comes along and goes huh, like that and destroys everything and the water falls like over a waterfall. And that how fresh is the waterfall falling? How free? And I think we'll Bring the formal part of the morning to a close with that nice little image. <laughs> As I said, uh, uh, oh, I didn't say, for those of you who are new, you're welcome to stay and have some tea. Check out the library. See Jean if you want to become a member or need any help. Until we see you again, peace to you all. <laughs>